gospel reading today is from Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls to his friends and neighbors, calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, hi, everyone. It's great to be with you, and it's wonderful to share this morning with you. And if you are new here, we are going through a series on the parables, and we're going to kind of just keep going until either I get tired of the parables or you do. Um, and that may be today, because this parable is tough. And uh, if I'm doing my job, I need to meddle with you a little bit. And I need to bother you a little bit, because I think this text does. This text meddles with me and my preconceptions about the church and about mission and about who I am. Uh, and it bothers me. And so I think uh, that's probably going to come through. And you might be bothered a little bit maybe a lot. So uh, we may not do this next week. We'll see. But uh, this is a wonderful opportunity for us as a church uh, to reflect upon who are we in this parable? How does this parable address me and how does it address in town? So as we do that as individuals and as a collective, let's uh, begin by praying together. Father, I do pray that you would guide us and I pray that the reflections of my mind and my heart would be beneficial to all of those who are gathered. And the only way that is possible is if you speak to us, is if you empower these words, if you inflict your grace upon us. And sometimes grace is painful. Sometimes grace, as liberating and as wonderful and as needful and as vital as it is, it's hard to assimilate into our lives. It's not how we think it's not how we often treat others, and it's not how we treat ourselves. And Father, I pray that you would surprise us with your grace, that you would pry open those places in our hearts and our lives that are resistant to your grace, and that you would fill us, and that you would change us. And Lord, would you guide me as I speak and guide us as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever you read the Gospels and see that Jesus taught a parable to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, sometimes the Sadducees as well, you know they're about to be set up. 
they're not going to be the heroes in this story. They're going to be the goats. But Luke wrote these stories down for subsequent readers, for us, as if they're, they have some relevance, some bearing upon our lives. So maybe we're the ones that are being set up. It's a trap, as the Star Wars meme goes. We're all about to walk into a trap, but we may not see it at first because this parable is about lost and found. And these three parables are about lost and found. The one that we didn't read is the parable of the lost son. And the easiest thing to do in these parables for most of us, and it's not wrong, is to identify with the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son and to be amazed at grace. I was lost and now I'm found. And really, we could spend our lives recognizing that and reflecting upon that and meditating upon that and never move beyond that because it's so deep and so full of truth for our lives that we don't make our way to God, but He makes His way to us in forgiveness and in grace and in love. But the setup, the trap, comes in verse 2. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It sounds great when we're the sinner in question. The journey, however, from sinner to saint is a very treacherous one. And often as we move into religious communities, nothing feels easier to us, nothing feels more natural to us than closing the door behind us as we come in. As we learn the ropes, as we memorize the script, as we establish our belonging inside of these religious communities, the foundational realization, the thing that got us into this community, the thing that started this journey to begin with, that we didn't find our way in, but God found His way to us, becomes more and more obscured by more and more religious stuff. That journey from lost sheep rescued to a grumbling Pharisee is a painfully short one, where we become Christians. We come into the kingdom, we come into the community because of the openness of God's hand, because of the inclusion of His grace, the power of His reaching out to us. And then we begin to restrict that for others, and often for ourselves. We lose sight of what's really happened. Now, before we go too far, there's three parables here, as I said, three parables of lostness. And the most famous one we didn't read, the prodigal son, or if some have called it, the prodigal God. And each is a short story about something that's lost and then the response of the person who lost it. The shepherd is searching, the woman stumbles upon it, and the father, despairing of his lost son, receives him back. And what drives all of these stories, the big reveal, if you will, is the character and the love of God, his surprising posture towards sinners. Jesus describes in these parables a highly relational God who rejoices to see broken relationships restored. The son returns to the father's house after wasting 
half of his fortune and all of his social capital. This would have been a gigantic embarrassment to the family and to the father. And instead of a rebuke, instead of a scolding, instead of punishment, instead of discipline, this reckless, unrepentant, ungrateful child gets a party. He gets a celebration. Against all social custom and masculine decorum, the father runs to embrace the child. Now, what was the expected response? Certainly, the son just hoped to be fed. He hoped to be just a servant. That was as high as his hopes could go because what was the expectation in circumstances like this? What was the discipline for a child who dishonored their parents? Anyone know? Yeah. And not an easy death, a painful one, stoning. That little footnote in the parent-child contract would change the dynamic at home, would it not? Breaking curfew would be a whole new situation, pretty precarious. But the father, who is the stand-in for God in this case, he chooses relationship over rules. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law look on with contempt. They look on and they mutter and they grumble about a parent who's too lenient, a parent who is recklessly lavish with their forgiveness. How is he going to get the message that what he's done is wrong if you forgive him so easily? And they have a point because the world they inhabited is established upon order and hierarchy and predictability and class difference. And it was all upheld by a religious framework with certain assumptions about God that is very different than what we get in this parable. You see, if we follow this parable, if we follow where Jesus is going, it overturns not just social convention, but big parts of the Old Testament law. Their relationship to God, their religious structure was predicated on knowing with great clarity who is in and who is out, knowing with great clarity what is wrong and what is right, knowing who is unclean and who is clean. And Jesus is consistently hanging out with people on the wrong side of those dichotomies, on the wrong side of those boundary markers. He was welcoming sinners And sinners flocked to him, and the so-called righteous rejected him and muttered and grumbled. He befriends the very people who, in their understanding at least, stir the anger of God, not his welcome. He upsets the constructs of this religious community, of this religious certainty of sin and punishment, of insiders and outsiders. And Jesus comes, and as if he's Working with sand just rubs it all out so these boundary markers are no more, at least not in the way that you thought about them. Now, we said that Luke wrote this down for a purpose, for perhaps us, and it's not so we can be appalled 
at this religious insight of how these religious people used to act, but it's there so that we can hold it up as a mirror to our own religious community, to our own religious practice, to our own tendency to think in dualities and dichotomies of in and out, worthy and not, sinner and saint. For us to look at our own church and wonder, what kind of stories would be written down about us? If Luke was following us around and he wanted to tell Theophilus the story of how the gospel began to get started in the city of Portland, what story would he write about in town? What does our community tell people about the posture and the character of God? Do people see God mediated through this community? Do they see Him as exceedingly generous? Do they see a prodigal God who runs out to embrace sinners? Do they see a community of reckless grace? Or one of a religious community with great certitude about who's in and out? A religious community of exclusion? Are we people who wear our own lostness on our sleeves for everyone to see? Or do we tend to be the elder brother types, the Pharisee, suspicious of anyone who blurs lines of in and out, lines of distinction, worthy, unworthy, acceptable, unacceptable sins? Do people who don't share our political party, our nationality, our ethnicity, our sexuality, our way of reading the Bible, do they find the door open to them or shut to them? Or maybe you've got to jiggle it a little bit to get in. The people, you see, that we have a hard time imagining Jesus partying with, the people that make us grumble like the Pharisees grumble, they tell us something about our vision of God, do they not? They tell us something about how we relate to Him. These people that God places in our lives are in, sense, in a sense a test of our religion. They're a test of whether we've built our faith upon the extravagant, unmerited favor of God who reached out to us when we were lost and who continues to uphold us, as we sang about, who continues day after day to run to us and embrace us, even when we blow it, even when our repentance is only just beginning. And we haven't really turned from the thing that has harmed our relationship with Him, and He runs to embrace us. He ignores the decorum of what a God is supposed to be like, what holiness is supposed to be like. In a sense, he kind of breaks his own rules by reestablishing us in the household. Or do the way that we relate to other people, those people that we grumble about, those people that we can't imagine Jesus partying with, is that because we envision a God who polices the boundaries, a God whose love is tentative and his favor uncertain, and any day we could lose it. If that's his posture, if that's his character, that makes 
congregations full of anxiety. It makes congregations built on surveillance and policing the boundaries and how everyone is doing. Are they following the rules? Because you see, all of us assertive, anxious, self-righteous people congregate in communities that mirror our fears, that mirror our way of seeing God. And so if you look around, at least in the modern West, at least in modern America, you see that churches are far more likely to be places that are made up of the very same people that Jesus chastised for their religious dogmatism rather than they are made up of people that he partied with. And if we don't see that as a problem, something is wrong. Why do we not get this? How is this parable, the lost son, one of the most well-known and well-rehearsed and most taught-on parables, and yet what lies kind of hidden in plain view is so absent from most religious communities? How is that possible? It's no wonder, then, that churches are emptying out. Frank Zappa said, my best advice to anyone who wants to raise a happy, mentally healthy child is keep him or her as far away from a church as possible. And Lenny Bruce, a little bit earlier, every day people are straying away from the church and going back to God. Now, they're writing a few decades ago, but they're sort of prophetic about what has come to pass, first in Europe, now in modern in North America, and that people in the modern secularized West don't think the church has a good story to tell. They don't think that we have a compelling vision of God. And I hate to say that most of the time, they're right. And there are people on the left, the critical side, that are just as dogmatic as fundamentalist people on the right. But there are people that are calling us out for our hypocrisy, and they don't want anything to do with our vision of God, at least as it's extrapolated in the media and in print and so forth. They're not searching for God in our churches. The church is gone in 50 years from a vital institution that's respected in just about every community and pastors as vital, respected people in the community that are counseled and consulted on things affecting the community to those two institutions being, if not novelties, completely suspect and thought of as being adversant to the common good. All the while... Most churches keep doing church just like we've always done, keeping the seat warm for the 99, keeping our churches comfortable places, trying to keep the 99 in, hoping maybe if we do our worship well, if we have good music, if our preaching is good, maybe the one will come in and pay us a visit. Now, let's be fair to Christianity. It's not just Christianity that is in radical decline, that's having a tough time in radically secularized places like Portland. Just about all expressions of institutional religion are in stark decline. But if Charles Taylor, Peter Berger, other sociologists are right, and I think they are, the coming of this so-called secular age has meant that 
people have more or less renunciated the old religions of the old world, that they don't operate with the assumption that being a part of one of those communities is a vital part of being human and pursuing their flourishing. However, what is consistently said along with that is that these same people have not given up on finding some spiritual experience, not given up on finding something that is beyond them, that is bigger than them, that explains this world in some coherent way. But they're not, friends, going to be looking for it in communities of anxiety. They're not going to be looking for it in communities of suspicion. They're not going to be looking for it in communities who live in fear of an angry God who is withholding of his love, who if you get out of line, you are done. They're not visiting communities of certainty about the few who are in and the most who are not. But that's point one of the sociological kind of observation where these people are not going, where they're not finding truth, what they don't find compelling, that they've rejected the church's common story about God. However, as I talk to people in Portland, as I'm sure you do, just in a friendly way or even in conversations about spirituality and about people that are about pursuing truth and what that looks like, I've yet to meet anyone who hates the idea of a prodigal God. Maybe they don't believe that it's true, but I've yet to meet anyone who hates a God whose very nature is love. I've yet to meet someone who has walked away from the church because the vision of God in that church is a God who rejoices over the embrace and inclusion of sinners and outsiders. That's not the story that people give on the exit interview. That's not why they're leaving. That's not why they're not coming and considering Christianity as perhaps having an answer to their quest. They haven't rejected this God because for the most part, they haven't heard of him. How could they? This isn't the God that most modern churches talk about, that most pastors on TV talk about. This isn't the God that you find when the TV cameras come to most interview most people that speak for Christianity. How could they have heard of this sort of God? And how can people believe, as Paul says, if they haven't heard? This isn't the God that most American churches believe in. This idea of God has been hiding in plain sight, carefully concealed where? In our Bibles. And I want you to hear this because I've set this up in such a way that if you're not still listening, you may walk away thinking that maybe what I'm suggesting is that because the culture has so radically shifted, that we need to reduce Christianity down to its most attractive parts. We've got to be good salespeople here. We've got to believe less. We've got to be less robust about our confession of who God is. We got to reduce or water down the gospel. And I say no. I say that is not the answer. What I'm saying is that the gospel needs to be actually radically reasserted. 
and expanded. What I say is that we need to start reading our Bibles again. We need to open them up and see what they actually say, apart from all of this, all of this religious stuff that has obscured its most central message, apart from all the denominations that have cluttered the central things about who Jesus is, so much that people can't see through our division and our infighting. They can't see Jesus because of us. I think we need to open our Bible in such a way that us, religious, churchy people, we step into the trap of the gospel. We step into the trap that Jesus is setting here for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I think we need to start reading our Bibles again so that our prejudices, our practices are called into question, at least re-examined. That our boundaries are terrorized just as Jesus terrorized the boundaries of the religious community that claimed to speak for God without error. That all of the things that we have built around are added to the gospel come crashing down so that maybe for the first time, at least in modern circumstances, people can begin to see Jesus. For the most part, they haven't rejected him if he's rightly explained. But they have rejected us and the way that we talk about him. Our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones and our coworkers, those that are the ones in our lives, they're not on the move from a prodigal God. They're not on the move from a Jesus who makes camp with the last and the least. But they're on the move from a church that's beholden to safety and certitude and the happiness of the 99. They're on the move from a church that's built from the ground up to serve the interests of comfortable people who are comfortable in their religion and don't want to change. But they want their church to affirm everything that they already believe. And when it fails to do that, when it stops doing that, they go find another church. And I shouldn't say they, I should say we, because that's built into our DNA and our instinct as well. Our friends, neighbors, loved ones, our coworkers, the ones that we wish were here, the ones that we wish could see Jesus for who he really is, they're not afraid of necessarily. They're not resistant to a God who searches out coins of very little value to him. They're not resistant to a God who pursues and carries sheep who don't like the sheep pen very much. They're not rejecting necessarily a God who runs out to embrace his lost and errant children. They haven't rejected that God for, because for the most part they haven't heard of him. And we need to take responsibility for that. Jesus came eating and drinking and partying with all the wrong people with all the people who aren't necessarily here on a Sunday morning and aren't in most churches on Sunday morning. 
and we need to wrestle with that. We need to bear responsibility for that. Did you notice as we read that the woman, the shepherd, the fact that the sheep was lost, the fact that the coin was lost, they didn't blame the coin or the sheep. They said, I have lost them. We have lost them. Maybe the church needs to recognize and see ourselves in multiple places in this parable and say that maybe we have lost our friends and neighbors, our coworkers, our loved ones, our culture, because we haven't really given them Jesus. And we haven't, what's painful to say, given ourselves Jesus. If only says that the establishment, the religious establishment, the religious Pharisees grumbled, they muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. If only people in our day would accuse the church of that. If only people, maybe other Christians who look down their nose at people who think differently and do differently, if only people would say that about in town. Look at that church where they welcome sinners and eat with them. How could they? I think, friends, as we conclude, this can only be true. This can only start. And I told you I was going to meddle, right? I told you that I was going to be a little bit bothersome because I'm bothersome to myself in these matters, and I think the text is bothersome. But I would say, and this is where we hopefully turn the corner on the good news, not chastisement, not the mirror just to see how we have erred and how we have gone astray. But here's the good news and the hope that this could only start at, God, at in town, only as each of us reflect on our own stories, on our own unfitness for God's approach. Only as we see ourselves in the people that we find it most difficult to see Jesus partying with. Only as we see in them a reflection of us and how badly we need grace, how lost we all were. And the person that you may have the hardest time seeing Jesus partying with, the sad truth of the matter is it may be you. That may be one of the most difficult, one of the reasons that you find it difficult to extend grace to other people is that you have a hard time seeing Jesus do that with you. And this strange sort of inverted psychology sets in that the reason that we bar the door to other people is because we view our own belonging as tentative. So maybe we're hiding in religion. We're hiding in doctrine. We're hiding in right thinking. We're saying, if I get this right, then my life and my belonging to the church is not tentative. But if that's how we parse it, it, it is. And therefore, we close the door on the way in. Because people unlike us coming in upset that duality, upset those dichotomies, upset our carefully orchestrated scheme of certainty because it's not built on anything lasting other than our own present circumstances and our own present conviction. And so maybe the only way it's going to start 
is that when we see, maybe for the first time, God running to you, God embracing you at your worst, as you are, the real you, not the real, not the you that you tell everyone, but the you you. When you see God embracing you as you are, maybe then you can embrace others, others and you can envision a church that does the same. Maybe when you begin to see, when I begin to see, that He rejoices, celebrates in our homecoming that His love is not tentative, but extravagant and eternal, that you are worth Him killing the fatted calf for and throwing you a party. When you begin to believe and meditate upon, and it gets into your soul, that that's exactly what happened. When Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, and he shared that meal with them before going to the cross, and he said to them, my death is for you. And this feast begins an eternal feast, an eternal party that you always have a seat at. You see, on a surface reading... There's one lost sheep and 99 who aren't. But the 99 who are righteous, who don't need saving, Luke tells us that's a fictional community. Those people don't exist, and they've never existed. Everyone, friends, hear this. Everyone is brought in. Everyone is found Everyone is carried in on Jesus' shoulders, and everyone remains there because He chooses to keep carrying us, and we're there based upon His tent, His strength, because He went into the far country where we were to find us, and He makes a safe seat at this table, both for elder brothers who have a tendency to look down on prodigal children and prodigal children who have left and have run away from a God they fear, a God they're uncertain about. And he says to both of us, everything I have, it's yours. Let's pray. Father, that we would see you in this parable, that we would personalize it. As we think as a community, certainly we have work to do at externalizing this message for others, at rearticulating the gospel in a way that it makes sense and that is true to who Jesus is. But Father, I pray that we would not leave here without doing business with the gospel for us, for what it means for our story, what it means for how we think of ourselves in this community. Father, I pray that as we come to this meal, as we make our confession, that you would make that to be more and more true of who we are and how we think of you, that we were lost sheep, wandering, no interest in the sheep pen, and you brought us in. And so, Father, as we get commissioned, as we leave this service, that we would then be more enabled to do that for others, to go looking for the lost sheep and to point the way home. I pray that we as a church would do that in our mission, and that we would build our church not 
around the 99. We would care for the 99. We would love the 99. But that we would not be content to do only that and that we would go and find those who are outside, who need a shepherd, who need someone to love them, who need to be included because of your grace. Lord, we pray that that would be true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.